what I feel proud about and it's really exciting and cool is that we, this community, um, we are a model trail community. We have all of those services. Kingdom Trails as the association doesn't offer all the services. We are here. Our mission is to, to build up our community, to provide the trails so that somebody else can b- give the service and make money. Welcome to Trail Effect, episode 33. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. This episode features Lil Ide. Lil is in charge of communications and programs for Kingdom Trails in East Burke, Vermont. We dive into Lil's backstory regarding how she got into mountain biking and how she came on board as the third person hired by Kingdom Trails. Lil has worked in very pivotal roles within the organization, from marketing and event coordination to her current role. Kingdom Trails in East Burke is not only a model trail community, but also a highly functioning trail-specific nonprofit organization that helps add to the economic development of East Burke, Vermont. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. So here we are on Trail Effect. I have Lil Ide from the Kingdom Trails. Lil is the marketing coordinator for Kingdom Trails, and she has been with Kingdom Trails for a long time now. So she's super well-versed in what's going on in the Northeast part of our country in Vermont. How's it going today, Lil? It's good, Josh. It's really good, but I, I might have to correct you already. Okay. Sorry to just take it off correcting. Yeah, um, for sure. Well, so technically my... Uh, title now is communications and programs. Um, and we'll probably get into why that is the case in the future. I was the marketing manager for quite a while, but that, that title shifted recently. So that's my title now. Things evolve. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So let's hear about your backstory, how you get into mountain biking and how, you, how the Northeast has remained your home for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, mountain bike. I think, um, well, my relationship with bikes, um, started when I was really obviously younger, started riding bikes. Uh, but truly I had, a, I had a hand-me-down strawberry shortcake huffy and, um, just couldn't handle it. Um, I, I used to crash on it all the time, you know, being a little girl on dirt roads in Brownington. I grew up in Brownington, Vermont, further north of here, very rural. And my closest friend was probably a 20-minute drive away. Did a lot of wandering around in the woods, exploring by myself. My two, I had a younger brother and an older brother. My older brother, and still to this day, was always pushing me to go faster and to try harder on my bike. So I crashed a lot. That's my point. 
and I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, but it turns out when I came back to biking later on in life that you just crash a lot and that's normal. <laughs> um, well, I don't crash as much anymore, but you got to get through that, right? You are going to crash when you're mountain biking. So yeah, I grew up super rural on a sheep farm. We had 150 sheep and cows and horses and goats. And I think that explains a lot. As I go through life, I, when I reflect back, I think to myself, geez, how did I get here? I was just was wandering around aimlessly. But when I think back to my early days and the fact that I was raised on this farm in a very this remote area where I did a lot of wandering around in the woods, which I still love to do, to parents who were working on their passions. My father did timber frame restoration, historic preservation, timber frame restoration. And my mom made candles, sold candles out of our house. People traveled to come there to buy them and then worked in social work also. I see now that the way I was raised was to have the values of following your passion and ethically, living ethically and with a close connection with nature. So um, I appreciate that. Uh, I went to high school in St. Johnsbury and there wasn't much biking when I was in high school for me. And, and really, I'm pretty old. So it was a long time ago. Mountain biking wasn't quite a thing yet. Um, but I did get my first mountain bike. My parents gave me one for my high school graduation because I was, I did start to hear about it. And I said, I, I think I might like this mountain biking thing. Um, and Kingdom Trails at that time had already, I believe, it was, I don't want to say the year it was, but they were already building trails. I promptly had that bike stolen by going to a friend's house and um, leaving it outside. And it was quickly stolen. But throughout my college years, I, uh, I wanted to stick with mountain biking. So I bought myself my first mountain, my first mountain bike that I purchased. Pretty sure it was a Trek 4300 from Eastbrook Sports. John Worth was one of the founders of King Trails um, and started kind of exploring around on what would become Kingdom Trails at that time. And after college, I did have a stint in Burke. Um, between Stowe and Burke, I was teaching snowboarding. I was logging. I was working doing historic preservation with my dad and mountain biking. And just I remember the feeling of exploring trails back in those days when they are they weren't quite established yet. It's just so exciting to be like, oh, there's a trail. I'm going to go try and ride that trail. And mountain biking was so hard and such a new thing. And I was by myself kind of just wandering around looking for those little trail signs, um, which now I know were Kingdom Trails at that time. And um, it was really exciting, but I didn't, there was, were not a lot of people doing it. And I knew that out West, there would be more people doing it. So I saved uh, enough money doing the timber frame restoration to head out west. Um, and I didn't know where I was going. I figured that I would know when I got there and ended up in Jackson, Wyoming and lived there for about a year. Great mountain biking there. I was mountain biking and climbing mostly. Actually, I had a great experience in that um, I ran and started working for this guy who had a pawn shop, coffee shop. And um, he owned a home in Grand Teton National Park because his family had owned that home before it became a park. And so his family had then had permission to continue to live there right in front of the Grand Teton. And he had a teepee. And I said, if, if I put that teepee up for you on your property, would you let me live there? And he said, sure. 
So I got the permission to, um, this is a digression, right? Is it okay if I digress? This is perfect. <laughs> um, so I, I got a permit to, to cut wood in the National Forest, the lodgepole pine, and, and there was a guy I knew who had set one up before, and we went through the whole motion, set up that teepee, lived right in front of the Grand Teton. We walked down to the Snake River and catch dinner. There was a herd of buffalo that lived there. The road was Antelope Flat Road flats road and there were antelope on the road so anyway i used to ride my bike back and forth from town it was out of town <laughs> that's how the bike plays into it um but you know continued biking there at that point i may have actually purchased my second mountain bike which would have been a specialized i think rock hopper maybe at the time um which had disc brakes which was a really crazy new thing that nobody knew anything about and i think they were magura julies and so whenever anything happened to these brakes I would take them to a shop and people would say, hmm, I'm not sure what to do about those. So I, it, it was cool and that I could went through the process of learning how to work on them myself. And they seemed pretty complicated at first. But anyway, that's funny. And I think I really enjoy like the Northeast Kingdom where I grew up is a place where it raises people who are really self-sufficient. So biking is enjoyable to me in the aspect of maintaining your bike and it being a very uh like it makes me feel strong and capable um something that you can you can do well if you are strong and capable it's pretty hard if if you're not i guess you could say um so anyway uh let's see from there i headed up i went on a spring trip to tahoe to do some riding and found out that you could make money pretty easily in California. So, and found a boyfriend. So, ended up heading over to Tahoe, living in California, um, and in the foothills of California, mainly riding and climbing. Um, and I had gone to school in Western New York and studied art. So, during this all, I'm still doing, I'm still staying in the studio, um, doing ceramic art, which was my thing, spending my time between ceramic art biking and climbing and working restaurant jobs, which is pretty typical to make your money. So I'm in California at that point. And uh, we decided, my boyfriend and I, that we should move to Portland, Oregon, because we heard the trails were good there. And it was a cool town. So I sold my vehicle thinking we were going to be in a city and spent five years in Portland, Oregon without a vehicle, which was amazing. It's the best way you could experience a city for sure. Um, and, but also the first, we drove up to Oregon and the first place we ended up, you know, we just were driving up and we were looking for places to ride. We run into these people. They're like, we're doing the Mackenzie river trail. Come on with us. It was the first trail I rode in Oregon, which is a, a beautiful trail. So they have just incredible trails up there. So spend a lot of time in hood river, you know, riding post Canyon or Syncline, um, weekend trips to Oak Ridge, one of my favorite places there. And, um, and then Whistler is not far away. Um, and while I was in Oregon, I worked at the bike gallery and became friends with this woman who was doing some organizing slope style events, a, a ma most amazing woman, female rider I've ever seen, but maybe seen a lot, I don't know, but she's really amazing. Stephanie Nitschka. And, uh, so I would look, Give her a shout out if she's listening. Hey, Stephanie. Um, so she was organizing like this event called the Slope Sister. So I went up there with her for this women's slope style event for Whistler. And um, 
made a couple of trips up there. Throughout this time, doing a lot of trips down to Utah. My brother, I had uh, at some point come back to Vermont, was making periodic trips back to Vermont, seeing this progression in the area of the trails growing and bringing more and more people to the area, which you know wasn't happening back before I left, which is why I left. But my brother became very active in the trail community. He's pretty iconic now. He's a trail builder and very passionate, a good friend of mine. Um, so we started doing trips down to Utah to checking out the Red Bull Rampage sites. Of course, that's the first place we had to go is Red Bull Rampage site, not ride there. I mean, Gooseberry Mesa, maybe try a little riding down uh, some of those areas, but it's pretty intense. Have you ever been to? I've only ridden in the Park City area in Utah. And that was actually in the 90s when Norba Nationals used to be a thing at Deer Valley. Mm-hmm. If you remember, I mean, you probably remember that because you're talking in terms of that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was never quite into the race scene. I don't, I don't really know much about the race scene, but yeah, I have heard of the area and I've never been there. Um, but Gooseberry Mesa and then Bootleg Canyon and um, Sedona, Arizona, incredible trails. So doing a lot of riding down there too. Uh, long story short, decided to move back to Vermont. Actually was headed to New York to pursue an art career and stopped in Vermont on the way. And a new boyfriend had sold my house in Oregon and um, got pregnant. I don't know how it happened. It's uh, <laughs> crazy, yeah. <laughs> so decided to settle here. And still, in the meantime, continuously have art and bikes going on. Climbing has kind of gone by the wayside. And um, saw that really there is potential maybe for a for business opportunity here now in Burke around mountain biking finally. So my two brothers and I started a business called I'd Ride. And so we were running shuttles to the top of Burke Mountain um, in this really janky old bus that was pretty sketchy, but people loved it. And running camps, uh, guiding, instruction. I was doing women's clinics. And um, at that time, though, definitely it was a little ahead of, you know, wasn't, it was not going to be easy for, for me to make a living at that. So when I walked into Kingdom Trails um, and ran into an old boss from the Long Trail, and I'd worked on the Long Trail, and he offered me a part-time job, I figured that would fill in. And that part-time job turned into a full-time job for the last 15 years. So that was a little bit of a roundabout way. <laughs> so you evolved from that to communications. Yes. Um, th- at the time... I was the third full-time year-round staff member at Kingdom Trails. Um, there was the trails manager and the executive director, and then I was the third one. And we, we called me the operations manager. But we all pretty much just did everything, shared everything. You know, The executive director would be standing there at the front desk selling people their memberships, day memberships or annual memberships. There was a, a uh, what's it called? A cash register. We used a cash register. And to take to keep track of our members, we had like a, you know, literally um, people would write their name, and then we would translate that to an Excel spreadsheet, and they would sign the waiver. We would have thousands of pieces of paper of waivers. Um, so I kind of came in and set up a point of sale system and a membership management platform and a digital waiver system so that people it would all be automatic, automatically enter inst- into our 
email contact list instead of us manually entering them. So that was kind of the first few years. And then set up the online store. We didn't have an online store. So started that and helped coordinate all of the events. Yeah. So you've spoken more than once about the sustainability of a career. How has the Kingdom Trails helped that community become more sustainable in terms of the economic impact? And and what does that mean for your community in a positive way? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just anecdotally, before before I left work, I, you know, I worked logging and um, on a road crew and, you know, things that we didn't really have much of a future. You know, I, I was just trying to make ends meet in order to live in Burke. So then coming back and being able to find this profession to see the opportunity for actually starting a business or to actually get the opportunity offered to you through the existing business. Um, you know, I'm, anecdotally, it kind of says it there. Um, but we've also done a number of studies. The, the last one saying, okay, so mountain bikers spend an average of $100 a day and they're coming an average of three days and they're coming an average of this far. And from here says the answer said that there was $10 million coming into the economy from just itself. I think 8 million from out of state, something like that. So these businesses, I, I went to an IMBA trail labs in Bentonville. Um, learn. I've been there. Have you to the uh, Bentonville itself or to the Imba Trail Lab? Both. Yep. Yeah. So they they talk about Bentonville quite a few times, and Trail Labs the first time around that they had it. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting, right? Like they talk about the model trail community and how to build the model trail community, and um, what I feel proud about, and it's really exciting and cool, is that we this. Community, um, we are a model trail community. We have all of those services. Kingdom Trails as the association doesn't offer all the services. We are here. Our mission is to, to build up our community to provide the trails so that somebody else can b- give the service and make money. And so that this trail, this model trail community grew very organically. Nobody really had any idea. It's this model trail community has kind of been a night, been a concept but not way back when this started. So it really grew very organically into a model trail community. And, and so, like I said, the mission of Kingdom Trails being to stimulate the local economy and then promote the health and wellness of the people. I think it's really doing that by offering only the trails and letting other businesses be successful around it. Yeah, what's interesting is I did not know that you had uh, attended Trail Labs. So I attended Trail Labs in 2018. And so it was a new thing. That was the first time they had it. You guys were, a, I would arguably say, a model trail community a decade or more ahead of that. I didn't want to say it, but... <laughs> uh, no, I'll say it because it's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, that's how I... It was interesting because when we were there, you know, they, they, were, they would have different speakers and they're like, and this, and you do this. And people would be like, I didn't... I was just sitting there like, well... Kingdom Trails does that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we've been really fortunate. I mean, it's the community. What's amazing is that it's all built on private landowners' land who just give permission. They receive nothing in 
return except for the benefit of the community. And, and it's kind of a, you know, it's a long tradition of people in our area. First of all, knowing that we all need to work together to really succeed and that we need to help our neighbors. So there's a tradition of shared land access anyway. My point is that it just has taken a lot of people. A lot of people have been instrumental in making this happen. And it continues that way. There's tens of thousands of people that make it happen between the members and the volunteers and the landowners. And no one person can take any credit. Yeah. The, I mean, that's, to be honest, the way you guys are set up is how Kingdom Trails got on my radar years ago. Because, you know, we're, where we live in Wisconsin, there's, I mean, it's, there's a ton of private land. And even if there's public land, there's a lot of private land between the public land. Yeah. And so how do you link that together, mm-hmm. right? In a, in a way that you can do it uh, both sustainably and economically. You know, some people think you just need to buy it. And it's like, well, let's do that. It'll be 100 years before you get that strung together, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and so I've always looked at the model that you guys have as, is a pretty awesome model to really help communities out. But, you know, it, it's, it does have its flaws, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, it does. We, and that's, that's obviously been, uh, been talked about and been written about in the last year. Or so we don't need, we don't need to talk about that. That's something that other people can, <laughs> can dig up on their own. And in fact, in a, in a different interview, that'll probably be, online before this interview goes live is with Devin O'Neill. Mm-hmm. He recently wrote an article for Beta discussing it. Um, you know, Bryce Sherbach, who actually is who connected us, has written about it. The silver lining and everything, and then we'll move off this topic, is that there's definitely things to be learned and ways to improve, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's just, it's what it, my favorite trail community is experiencing the exact same thing right now. Well, I was listening to, I don't know if it was a podcast or something recently. Oh, it was an economics professor. And he was saying, you know, when things are going well, people don't look into why are they going well. But when things don't go well, they look into why aren't they going well. And so it brought a lot of things to the surface. And we don't need to get into it. But we've, I, I definitely, we have improved, you know, if, if nothing else, you just, there's learning experiences. And so you need to grow and change and everything can't be perfect all the time. I mean, in my role as marketing, um, was almost like things are too easy because everything's perfect, you know, but really is, is it perfect? (laughs) But let's, let's, um, I do want to say, you know, so you guys have a lot of, of, did you say state land or federal land? We don't know. We have mostly private land. And then the other land we have around us, where I live specifically that's public, is city-owned, mm-hmm. but controlled by state government because of funding ties to it. And the state of Wisconsin isn't the most bike mountain bike-friendly state. Right. Well, I was kind of going to say, yeah, it's not easy to access our public, our state land here in Vermont. Um, Yeah, we have areas around us that are private land, and yet we're not supposed to ride our bike on them for some reason. Uh, You know, if we want to access them, we have to apply for a permit to do it one time, one day, and pay them. And then if there are trails and you want to, you want to get your trails and, you know, which we have 
addressed onto a management plan, that process for getting that management plan updated for mountain bikes is going to be like a five-year process. So it's a lot faster. Yes. To, yeah, go for private land. Um, and But it's way different out West. It's not the same shoe fits all for everybody, right? They've got a lot of land out there, those lucky duckies. Yeah, there's a lot of open space. And the BLM is obviously a lot more pro mountain bike, mm-hmm. probably than any, any government agency right. out there. Yeah, exactly. Just go you know. set up your tent or van, just park and camp and ride. And it's hard to come. That was one of the things that was hard to get used to or not quite as fun is to come back here. I used to just drive, you know, in my truck and then jump in the back or set up a tent wherever uh, there was a lot of space to do that. But here, that's why Kingdom Trail is so important here because otherwise you, you don't have room to wander. You don't have any open spaces. You don't have room to recreate. So I feel like that's why it's so important. Speaking of Kingdom Trails, let's go into some of the events and some of the other things that you guys do up there that bring people into the community or help sustain the organization. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, in the years as the marketing and events manager, we did have some, some events that became pretty large. Nemba Fest being one of them, the New England Mountain Bike Association Festival. So that was a partnership with Nemba, New England Mountain Bike Association. And um, it actually started at the mountain, at Burke Mountain. There, I don't know if you know this is kind of history, but that at one point, Kingdom Trails and Burke Mountain Resort were in a partnership on the bike park. So lift access bike park, Kingdom Trails. Um, provided the maintenance. We built the trails. We maintained the trails. I started a instruction program in the park through Kingdom Trails, and we provided the EMTs. And then Burke ran the lift, so we would split the lift ticket. Uh, what's my point? Oh, events. So that's where yeah. we had the first Namba Fest, but and it was good. Namba Fest used to move all around in New England to all different locations. But it wasn't ideal because the camping was in a different place. It just, and it wasn't quite big enough. It started to get a little bit bigger. It started, I think there were maybe 500 people the first year or something like that. Um, so we partnered with the Wildflower property over in the center of Darling Hill um, to have it there. And it just really took off, mainly because of the location, obviously, right in the center of the trail system where you have, you can ride any direction easy trails um, you can get to. Kingdom Trails itself as a network is pretty moderate. You know, it's low um, consequence. It's fun for all riding ability levels. You know, like you can ride 100 miles, but you're not going to tear up your body. Um, So it's pretty mellow cross country. But we also have Burke Mountain where there's steep and technical downhill, lift access flow trail bike parks or bike park. And then on the backside of Burke, there's also another little trail network that people really love that is more technical almost than either of those. So anyway, the amount of riding that there is here turned into 4,000 people because there's just such good riding. It was incredibly beautiful, but it took the resources that it took as a trail association. I mean, it brought a lot of recognition to the area. And at that time, you know, we really, our goal, we were working towards 
growing visits, you know, like, yeah, let's bring more people here. Cause what we heard from the businesses is that the businesses needed more people. Okay. Well, we'll move towards, you know, keeping our trails open all the time year round, uh, not year round, but all summer long so that we can make sure that people come and fill the lodging. Cause that's what we're hearing we need. And so we were working towards that. Um, but once we hit that 4,000 mark, that number in like a weekend. Yeah. Just to clarify that. Yeah. Uh, 4,300 attendees is, is kind of, I think, what we arrived at. You know, we were spending, me and my role was spending, you know, the majority of my time working with NEMBA to organize that, you know, down from the shuttles to the bathrooms. You know, we had to truck in all the water for the showers and the bathrooms. And um, it was just a tremendous, a tremendous amount of resources. and. Our trail crew, you know, working towards setting it up for weeks straight up and then breaking it down afterwards. So we don't do it now. But in the year after, after it hasn't, in the year after we didn't have it last year, which was the first year since we stopped doing it, we've built 13.7 miles of trails that year alone. Whereas before that, we worked hard to get in five miles. So there are different benefits, you know. Um, we got the people here. That's why I'm now communications. Wait a minute. <laughs> Let's settle down. If our community is our focus, what does our community need now? And they are saying loud and clear, now we need to work towards like the sus- sustainable development. There's a real move now in in tourism towards thinking in the beginning, when you're promoting tourism, about developing the community sustainably instead of just pushing growth, push more and more and more people and not thinking about what you're going to do when they're all there. And we're a model for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it is super important. Yeah. I mean, that I can't even imagine 4,000 plus people in any community that maybe doesn't already have a regular population of 100,000 or more, much less a community of what's, what's East Burke, a couple thousand people? 800, I think 800. 800 people year round. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like incredible stress on the infrastructure. I mean, on an average weekend basis, you know, we recently did a capacity study. I don't know if you heard about this, but um, we yep. received a grant to undergo a a capacity study because even on an average weekend, our infrastructure is put is stressed with parking, road crossings, just safety issues. So then, you know, if you take that one Nemba Fest weekend, I mean, yeah, people had a it was the last year that we had Nemba Fest. I it was the finally the year that I was like, this is really fun. I'm really enjoying myself. I wasn't over the top stressed, you know, like nothing major went wrong and and everything always went very smoothly, but it's just a matter of, you know, how much can the community take? So at some point things might yeah. happen. Yeah. What now with talking 2020, you got 13 miles of trail built or more than 13 miles of trail built. We saw where I live and I think this was pretty common across the country, if not across the globe, trail use actually go up. Did you guys see that or did it actually go down 
for you guys relative to what you were experiencing, which might be an anomaly because of what you were experiencing pre-2020? Yeah. Yeah, we were an anomaly again, um, maybe because, first of all, we have trail membership fee, whereas most other places don't, you know. And so we also monitor our trails. We have ambassadors. During COVID, we had ambassadors at the point of entry saying, where are you from? You know, have you quarantined? All of that, which definitely turned people off. Um, But our number one goal was to protect our community. That's what our community wanted was, you know, they they didn't want us to bring all the people that we used to bring there. That's just was scary for them. Nobody wanted that. So we were very forward facing about with our communication about we had really strict COVID guidelines and we enforced them. The local shops didn't let people in their store if they were from a a non-qualifying location, you know. So we were really strict about that and and people heard and our visits went way down. People started to use their own trails a lot more. And then also we about 38 to 40 percent of our visits are from Canada. So we were down 40% just right there. You also brought up another topic that I didn't have as a topic for us to talk about, but it's a topic I've always been interested in and something that comes up locally, which is trail passes or trail fees or some way to help offset maintenance costs and trail building costs and be able to spread that out. How is that working for you guys? And what have you, what have you found? I guess you've probably been doing it for a while. Is there any tips for trail com- other trail communities out there that you can think of that has worked for you guys in terms of being able to monetize it but not make it so it's ridiculous? Yeah. I, well, so they're memberships. We may, we're careful to make sure that we say that they are a one-day membership or a monthly membership or an annual membership to the association. And um, our number one priority is to make them affordable. You know, so for kids seven and under, it's free. And for seven to 15, I think we just raised the price for ten to $10, maybe it is. And then for an adult, it's $20. Northeast Kingdom residents, um, it's a 33% discount just right off the bat. And our main goal is to make sure that our local community can access it. And so, you know, it, one of these, as, we, as we've uh, become busier, we have consistently, you know, received advice like you should raise your prices. Your prices are too low on your memberships. But for us, we would rather be affordable to everybody and accessible. We, one of our goals is to be accessible and inclusive and welcoming. And so I guess it just depends what your goals are. If you're a trail association who doesn't want to get a lot of people and wants to, you know, have a certain type of person, then you would set your prices accordingly. I guess, does that answer your question? But I, I think it's amazing. Like the reason we're able to do all this and the reason we have 35 people on staff right now, you know, talk about economic driver too. Another example of how it has brought uh, an ability for people to find jobs to the area. We employ 35 people in the summertime. So, but that's, that's completely funded by membership. Well, we've started to work with grants a little bit now, but. 100% of our operating costs is membership funded. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to go. The fact that you guys could, those memberships help you sustain employment and that employment creates trails, maintains trails, helps maybe get people around the community in a more sustainable fashion. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff that goes into 
being a positive partner in the community and providing a very high quality user experience. And in addition, we also fund a mini grant program. So we give out $25,000 in mini grants each year, which also comes from membership. And last year, we gave out $25,000 to different agencies, COVID support, the local hospital, uh, the local food shelter. So we try and make sure to use, use it responsibly. Yeah. So if I, if I just heard that right, you're giving away some of the money you get to other nonprofits within the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So there's another positive yeah. impact that trails have for communities in mm-hmm. general. Yeah. Like, for example, we partner with um, the local art center. Um, so if they have an event, um, even, whatever it may be, like some sort of a youth film fest or something, we sponsor them. So we sponsor our local arts center, anything that brings outreach to our community. Yeah. Yeah. That's super important. So that's, you know, one of the, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to really highlight the community aspect of trails and what trails can do for communities. And so that right there just nails it, you know? Well, and not only that, but so I have a 12 year old son and a 13 year old daughter, but the 12 year old son, he's like, He'll come home from school and he's like, Kingdom Trails is like huge. It's like the biggest thing going on here. It's really important. He tells, you know, just because he can hear it, he hears it at school or he hears the way people are talking about it. And um, in his world, everything revolves around trails. As far as he knows, that's like how life is. Like everybody is always trying to go out and be on the trails. He wants to go to the city. He thinks it's annoying. But it's just become such a way of life in our community. It, when, when people come and visit, I hear often from other people outside of the community coming, the kids are so healthy, like uh, really exclaiming on the fact that they're not on their devices. I mean, sure, they're seeing the kids that are around the trail network, but it's definitely building and changing the culture and creating more health in it. Yeah. Which is another super important part, especially in today's world, especially 2020 and beyond, because I think we all saw by default screen use go up just due to virtual learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was really hard. Lots of screen time. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I have two daughters. They're five and almost eight. And my almost eight-year-old, is it's a struggle for me to, to get her off the screen, to get her outside. But once she gets outside... Like when we went mountain biking our first day of not school this this spring, mm-hmm. it was, we got to get off the iPad. We got to go out to the trails. We get out to the trails. And the first thing she says to me is, I'm so glad you convinced me to come out here because this is so much better than being on my iPad. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's a struggle. Like we have to fight that fight. Yep. But they always feel that way. Yep. And it's the reward. But yeah, but we're the ones who have to like, help them recognize that. <laughs> yep. For sure. So you guys also have winter use. Yeah. And that's actually something that I didn't mention was we also have a pretty big... I mean, we have... To go back to events real quickly, we've made the transition now. We still we have an event coordinator. So my I oversee the programs and the events, but I'm not actually you know planning them anymore. Now I have an event coordinator and she's really focusing mainly on community outreach. 
So she organizes, we brought back volunteer trail days. Um, we have an AmeriCorps community outreach coordinator doing a lot of youth programming. We have a race back to school, like fundraising, um, pledge a thon kind of thing. So we're really bringing it back to like cutting out those bring visitor type events to the let's get the community in on these events. But that being said, so we do have fat biking. We groom 25 miles of the single track for fat biking in the wintertime and 12 kilometers for skate and classic skiing. And then it's about 35 mile trail network for uh, snowshoeing. And in the wintertime, we do little torchlight trail events and a, we've traditionally done a demo day on January 1st, Resolve to Revolve. And then we have winter bike. And one year at winter bike, that bike fest, we had 500 people, which was quite a few. It was actually a year two where the conditions were like kind of soft. So it was really fun to watch a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. 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 A lot of, but you just, you know, you crash and you fall down in the snow, but um, that's traditionally been a super fun event. It's basically just a big fat biking party and, you know, fat bikers. Do you know fat bikers? I I do. We, we have this. We're in the hood. Yeah, yeah, we're we're we we do not the obviously the volume of of trails that you guys have as terms of mileage, but we also groom for fat biking. We also groom for for cross country skiing. Winters have gotten to be not what they were when you and I were growing up, but mm-hmm. it, it's still it's pretty awesome because even if condition I mean if conditions are not good for cross country skiing, you can still go fat biking. You can still get your workout. You're probably going to want some studs. Yeah, you might want some studs. They're pretty important around here. If it's icy. Studs definitely definitely are a game changer. And we have those same... We can get those same conditions here where it sometimes can get pretty treacherous. Yeah. Yeah. We are... Speaking of changing winters, that's probably what we've we've found quite a bit lately. But the nice part is exactly right. It's complementary. We have the alpine skiing at the mountain. If that's not good, then you can come down and you can, and you can cross country ski or fat bike. And so it really gives you a range of options. Yeah. Yeah. One event that we haven't talked about that actually hasn't happened yet because of COVID and you might not, you may not even know anything about this or much about this is the world enduro series might be coming to mm-hmm. you. I think they were yeah. supposed to come in 2020, obviously 2020 changed everything. And then 2021 is still kind of, you know, obviously the residual effects of that, that, that might be a pretty large event for your community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's public knowledge. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but yes, it will be held here. Yeah, it's on their calendar for 2022. Okay, in fact, yes. I think they yeah, have, they released their calendar a week or two ago and it was there. And I want to say there might be one at Stowe or, another, or one of the other resorts also up in the Northeast within a week of each other, I think. So they're, I think they're, I think they're trying to maximize the location, yeah. the proximity of of really good riding. Yeah, you guys have. Yeah, I don't. I don't know who the other one is, actually. Yeah, but I do know. Snow yeah. or Mount Snow, or I don't know. It's one of the other larger. Maybe it was mm-hmm. Killington. You know, Killington. Yeah, I, yeah. I would think I would guess Killington, but yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be cool. Um, yeah, we're gonna let them handle that or they've asked us for advice on you know some tips on managing large groups Four thousand three hundred people 
And we advised, you know, we said, you know, maybe just make sure that everyone's aware of it and that the neighbors ask the neighbors or wherever you're going to be staging things that everyone's aware of what's going to be happening and what to expect. And we wish the best for them. And as far as the resort, and we'll partner with them, of course, on everything. Yeah, it is pretty exciting because there, traditionally speaking, the EWS is pretty heavy in Europe, you know. And so to see, I don't even, I don't know if there's been any on the East Coast. Maybe there has, but you know, when it has been in the United States, it's typically been West Coast, you know, California or up in Canada, you know, up in Whistler. Yeah. Well, I yeah, it is exciting. I mean, I no doubt. In my mind, I, I think of this often. It is really hard for people in Europe or in out west to think that there's anything that's really worth a lot <laughs> over in the here in the east. And so you just kind of get that sense. So hopefully this will bring a little bit of recognition to the fact that there is pretty good riding. I mean, I I feel like I've ridden a lot of places and, and it's not just the riding, it's well, I think for me personally, I enjoy a more low key kind of scene. And so back here, if you're doing stuff in Vermont or you're on the East Coast and you're doing all this stuff, you really do have to work a lot harder <laughs> to do it. It's colder, it's icier, it's more humid, it's more slippery. And so I think we're more hardcore. No, I don't know. We're not more hardcore, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. There's validity to it. That's all I'm saying. Yep, for sure. With that being yeah. said, getting out of Kingdom Trails and into just communities in general, is there any, are there any communities or any one, any place that you've traveled to that really kind of stuck with you, either a place that you want to go back to or places that you've continued to go back to? Um, and maybe why is it that that place or those places really s stick with you? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the one, and it's not necessarily related to biking, but I'll speak to that also, is that I do spend a lot of time in Costa Rica. And that is part of what I've done personally is run some mountain biking and yoga and surfboards in Costa Rica. Costa Rica. But that's just because of like, as soon as I visited that country and stepped off the plane, there was something about it that just felt really comfortable and at home there. And so that has been a place that I've continued going. We got married there and our family goes there every year. And the mountain biking is good. You know, it's not established trail networks that I've used necessarily. There's one place that has about 15 kilometers of trails. And then at one, and then from there, you can ride about 25 kilometers down, descending off a vol volcano down to the city. And so it's more adventure riding. Um, but I know there are really good trails there around San Jose. So I just haven't been there. But I think that. The place that I that I really enjoyed the most, although I haven't been back there since I left, was the Oregon riding. And Sedona, Arizona is really beautiful too. But I do think I like the low-key... I don't know if Oregon's low-key anymore. At the time, it was kind of a low-key scene with amazing riding. Yeah, and it's growing. Back in either late January or early February, I received a random phone call from a guy in Oregon that wanted to do a podcast. I was like, okay, Pacific city, Oregon, right on the coast. And, oh, and I have heard in, in Tillamook County where they apparently mm -hmm. compete with Wisconsin for cheese. 
Totally. Um, that was something he brought up during the interview, but they are orange cheese. Yeah. <laughs> they are growing that community, that trails community in Pacific City and putting in a, a pretty extensive trail network on some federal lands that will have ocean views and some pretty awesome stuff. And I know people from the Portland area also are pretty excited about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember anything being there when I was there over in that area, but that is was one of my favorite areas over there. I think Manzanita is kind of right around that area too. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I've heard really good things. I'll have to go Oregon. check it out. You will. When it's built, yeah. it's not built yet. Oh. Got to get it. We got to get it. Or they have to get it built first. And that was the whole yeah. premise of that show was, you know, bringing more awareness. They had a, they had a fundraiser there trying to bring awareness to and, and whatnot. It was actually an, it was an interesting interview because it was a friend of mine who lives right here in La Crosse where I live now. He just recently moved here from Portland. A guy that had moved to Portland from Canada who ride, who was a rep for Nor- Norco Bicycles. And then the main fundraiser for this trail organization. And none of these people, well, the guy from Narco and the guy from other guy from Morgan knew each other, but they didn't know the other guy that I brought in to this conversation. And they all were tied together in some random way. And so it was a, that wasn't on purpose. Oh yeah. It was no, it's some random. Yeah. It was so it was really cool <laughs> to have those three guys just kind of like comparing notes about the area. You know. Well, it's the mountain bike, you know, uh whatever. Yeah. World. It's very small. Yeah. Well, but also speaking of, you know, I'm looking forward to speaking of places that are great to ride, um, looking forward to the border opening too, because heading north from here, there's some pretty great riding as well um, across the border up in Quebec. Quebec is so supportive of their, of their trails, of their mountain biking scene. They, they support, they, they support it with money. They, (laughs) let's just say that. Yeah. 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 I've heard a lot of good things about Quebec City. And the riding in that region yeah. being pretty, pretty fabulous. So there are multiple people um, that aren't connected. I would write Valley, Bra- I actually, I mean, Bromont and I've been to, of course, but uh, Valley Bras du Nord is a great place with a, a, a lot of trails. Um, so if you ever get the chance to get up there, it's a great spot. Yes. Yes, for sure. So We'll do one more thing about the trail communities in general. What type of th- amenities do you see important for trail communities to be? And, and mm-hmm. I mean, across the board, you know, obviously trails are an important amenity, but what, what other things has worked? What have worked for you guys? And what have you guys learned from and stuff that you feel is important to incorporate into trail communities? Mm. And do you mean like services around it? Services, accessibility. Or do you mean infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, all of it, because it's really an aggregate of all of it that makes the community, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think what seems most important to be as a, as a growing trail network, or if growing and building a trail network, is really to think long term. Um, I think when the trail network was established here, it wasn't, you didn't think, okay, well, if all the trails are here and you have to go across that bridge, to get there, maybe, you know, maybe we would have thought, well, let's not establish the center here because that could cause down the road safety issues, congestion, you know, but nobody was thinking at that time that it was going to be, that there were going to be that many people doing it. But I think that's long, long-term thinking, well, are we going to have one central 
one of our secrets, actually, not secrets, but one of the benefits is that there is this central hub, which is the town, and everybody can see each other and hang out at the bar and start from one spot. But also, that's one downfall or one challenge is to get people to access from different areas now because that's been established. So thinking long-term as to how you want people to access those trails, having enough parking locations, maintaining relationships with the landowners. Um, you know, I think that's obviously a very important thing. And also the support of the local businesses in your mission or your education, if that makes sense. So integrating the, the reach out to your shops and reach out to your businesses and bring them in, bring in the community. What we found, what we needed to do, to do was bring in the community and help them feel part of the process so that they would be invested in supporting us, if that makes sense. Even if it's, you know, they get, they got the chance to ask questions and they got the information straight from our mouth about like why a decision was made, why a policy was made. Um, and they've had the opportunity to ask them that's going to work because all, all the people coming into town that you need to get the information may not be coming to you or maybe they didn't look at social media, um, but they're going into your shops, they're going into your businesses. And if everyone is working together, that's going to be effective. Yeah. All things that we've all struggled with when it comes to growing pains. Yeah. Yeah. At least we're, at least there are growing pains, right? Correct. Yeah. And, yeah. Who would have thought that mountain biking would be what it is today, right? Back in the nineties when, you know, or even the late eighties when mountain bikes really kind of started when they started being produced. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like it was super fun and I, I always want to bring back that feeling of when you first got on, you know, you first started and you were like, riding under a power line was fun. <laughs> not riding on a power line trail or something. Um, but it's not easy. Yeah, you would, it's not, uh, I think mountain biking is, is not an easy thing. Do you? No, it's gotten easier. Yeah. It has, for sure. Things okay. have changed. It has definitely gotten easier since, you know, I think I started right around 1990. When trails were more primitive, mountain bike technology was, you know, you talked about disc brakes. Like I remember when we had cantilever brakes when, you know, now I, I laugh because there's, you know, there's still people that are niche about not wanting a dropper post. I don't need a dropper post. Oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. crazy. I know. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You don't need those 29 inch wheels. You don't need disc brakes. You need none of that. In fact, you don't need that suspension fork. Let's go back to an, a 1988 rock hopper, right? We could still mountain bike yeah. on that. But yeah, yeah, does it make it more enjoyable? Does it make it safer? Well, and that's the thing. Bikes have changed so much too that, you know, policies almost need to follow those changes and all that as things evolve, things are evolving. I know I had a friend who, well, he's, he's a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> hey, Andy, <laughs> if, you're, if you hear this, he was really excited because he's going to take his fully rigid whatever it was to the top of the mountain to ride it down, you know, like the downhill trail. And he was like, doesn't that sound sick? <laughs> I'm like, no, that sounds awful. I have no idea why you would do that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, and trails have changed, you know, I mean, now we have flow trail, 
and as as you know, you hear people, and and I, I like old primitive trail because I learned how to ride on it. But I also like the fact that I can take my daughter out on something, and her not be intimidated at five or six years old, you know, where if I would there. never have done that, <laughs> she would hate it if you did that on what we learned on. Yeah, I mean that's really probably what's allowed the the industry to grow because. Let's face it, if we were all riding on like New England rock, I don't think we'd be getting our kids into it. You know, we have the lift access bike park. We just drop our kids off there and they don't even have to pedal up the hill. (laughs) They're getting into it. And, you know, that's what King, like I said before, Kingdom Trails is good for. It's, It's getting people into it at a young age. It's keeping them, it's making them enjoy it for a long time. It's keeping them able to do it actually into their seventies, even, you know, with the, with having access to trails like that. So it's all necessary. The flow trails, the tech trails. Yeah. And and I've not been to kingdom trails. I hope to get there in the next year or so pending travel stuff and whatnot. But how is it unique that you guys don't have much rock in your trails, at least from what I've heard, like there's not a lot of rock, but yet New England, as you just said, is pretty famous for all of its rock. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, the Darling Hill itself in this area uh, was a glacial esker. Okay. So glacier came on through and deposited the silt as it was moving through from Lake, I think it started, you know, even up at Lake Willoughby, which is an incredibly beautiful lake if you ever get up here. Um, and so that's why, I mean, as you get over towards the mountainside, you're going to find a few more rocks, but certainly nothing like, you know, experience when going almost anywhere else in Vermont. And that's also why the glacial esker is sand deposit. So that's also why the sand dra- trails dry very quickly because it's a layer of sand underneath. And so that means that, uh, we don't have to close our trails. Well, also for the fact that we have 10 full-time trail crew. So we're able to maintain them and build them sustainably from the start. But it also, I mean, when I do enjoy, personally, I enjoy rock riding, you know, because it does bring you a few more features. So you're going to find, you know, you're going to find a lot of flow trail here, let's just say. Well, and you brought up your brother early on who is legendary and he specializes in rock. Yep. <laughs> He's a mason there. That was his trade before trail building. So, uh, yeah, he, and he really, you know, he specializes in rock work, but he also is, he really actually sees the trail as a, as a work of art in a way. Like if you see a trail, the berms that he builds are just beautiful. And so it's not just the rock work, it's the dirt work. Um, he has a vision, you know, as he's, when he sees the terrain, he has a vision. And, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm partial or not, but um, I do enjoy his trails a lot. Yeah. And he, if I am correct on this, gets to travel to Knoxville in the winter to build. Yeah. Yeah. He's really has a great community down there. Um, he's worked down there. He's worked in several other places too, but that's where he has been working for the last few years pretty consistently all winter long. So, I mean, he loves it up here and so travels back and forth and has this family up here so shares his time down there but it's pretty awesome community down there yeah that's been another pretty common community that's been brought up on this on this podcast is the community of knoxville and 
in what they have going on and how it is pretty special. Yep. Shout out to Knoxville, Brian, Matthew. So, well, should we wrap this thing up? Do you want to close with any thoughts or any people you want to thank or? Oh, geez. I mean, I, like I said, to be honest, uh, I mean, there's so many people that have been involved in this entire thing that I could thank everybody. <laughs> I personally wouldn't want to take any particular credit for anything. Um, CJ, our trail, the trails manager at Kingdom Trails, has been with Kingdom Trails for 19 years now, pours his heart and soul into it. Um, I'm sure you'll meet Abby. Um, they all the landowners who make the entire thing possible. I mean, without it, without them, the, there wouldn't even be a trail network. So thanks to everybody. Well, thank you for coming on this show and providing some entertainment and education and awareness and information and all the stuff that you just provided. Mm, I'm not sure if I provided any of it, but make sure you edit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> should I edit out the fact that we should edit a lot? <laughs> you you can leave that in because then people will know that I know <laughs> should be edited. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everybody. If you listened, sorry if you didn't, but you're not listening. So, so you don't know to <laughs> even know if it's sorry or not. But thanks, Josh, for reaching out. Oh, no, I, I do. Let's back up one thing quick. If we, there's one thing I really wanted to hit on that just uh, spurred my brain, adaptive mountain biking. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I just, I just saw a YouTube video, ironically, this week that was posted by a friend of mine who's also a New Englander who works for Imba. And he shared the video. And also this week that, that we're recording this, I released a podcast with Lacey Heward, who is an adaptive mountain biker. But prior to that, she was a, a multi-time Paralympic medalist in alpine ski racing. She had a spinal injury at a very young age. I would recommend that everybody listen to that show because it was probably the most, most inspirational show I've ever recorded. She's had multiple kidney transplants and she's still kicking ass. Yeah, I listened I listened to that and I was like that her drive. I mean, it sounds like she worked her ass off. Um and she has a lot of she's just really committed and her attitude is amazing. Um I thought it was there were definitely similarities, you know, with Greg cuz that was the one that you your friend shared and Lacey, you know, what touched me was just how they both spoke about being able to get out there on the trails. You know, Greg thinks that it made him feel like Superman and she said it's freedom. And, um, you know, the way she talked about the wheelchair and the challenges that come with that was just, I don't know. It really made me appreciate what they, what they handle and negotiate on a daily basis. And the fact that, that getting out there on the trails is an experience that makes them feel that is incredible. I'm glad that we can, we can yeah. help with that. Yeah. And so you guys are working with doing some more adaptive stuff in your community. I think it's with the Kelly Brush Foundation, if I'm not mistaken, at least a grant opportunity there. Yeah. Well, one of our, you know, big 
initiatives this year is to really examine in all ways how we can be a more inclusive trail network. And, you know, one of the ways is, well, how can we make our trails more accessible for a variety of people? And our trails are already, you know, come to find out, and, and we probably already knew this, are quite accessible um, because, because of the fact that there's not a ton of rocks. And because of there's enough double track and even, it, well, actually, the crazy thing is that these vehicles can, can navigate trails, single track trails or trails that even have tons of um, obstacles on them. So our trails, we, what we found this, we're kind of just going through the process of Kelly Brush Foundation, Greg is coming and Vermont Adaptive came and we did a demo day, but the whole point was for us to get out there and see what it would take in order to adapt our trails um, to accommodate. And it turns out there's not a ton if there's not very much that needs to be done. And really what needs to be done would not change the character of the trails very much. You know, people don't need to be worried about them being changed all that much to be made accessible. Yeah. So I just heard two things there. One is if you're an adaptive mountain biker, go to Kingdom Trails Vermont. Yes. The other thing I heard is you don't have to change much and your trail system is already pretty legendary, which means you can build adaptive trails that are pretty amazing for everybody. They don't, it doesn't change the characteristic of it for a regular able-bodied mountain biker. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really awesome. And, and one thing that Greg was really excited about, he said, I can go over here and I can find five miles of trails to ride and I can go over here and find five miles. But what I would love to do is be able to ride a hundred miles in one, at one sitting. And I don't know if we can get there, but there's definitely a significant amount of trails. If you're an adaptive rider and you're looking for somewhere to send, spend several days you're going to find it here yeah well come on over awesome well again thank you we're going to officially wrap this up now i should i should probably say that i should probably mention one more group that we're in which is the bike borderlands group i don't know if you've heard of this i have yes and so it's a group facilitated facilitated by the northern forest center which is a great organization here in um the northeast and um and so this is a group where we kind of work together to market and solve problems and just kind of anything that comes up and we've developed the ride with gratitude code of conduct campaign and so that's kind of a focus that i'm working on now so if anybody wants any information about that reach out yeah that's that's funny you say that i uh as soon as I saw that ride of gratitude come out, which I think would have been over the winter, maybe I saw it or last late last year, maybe. I don't know. I wasn't. I know it was in the last year. Was late last, last year, yeah. yeah. I immediately forwarded it to the powers that be within our trail organization here in Lacrosse, and was like, "We need to do something like this because this is so important for what every trail organization faces." Yes. Yeah. Well, that was the whole thing. Is that you know? So we're in this group. And there's eight other trail networks, but none of them are, you know, quite, we're probably the most advanced. So we were like, we need this. You know, our community actually said, we want you to develop a code of conduct and, you know, spread it. And so we were really glad to be, to do it as a group because we felt like as a group, it held more weight. 
and it wasn't just us doing it. And also what we'd love is if other groups adopted, because then everybody's going to buy into the same concept, which is to follow these super basic mantras of protecting nature and protecting the trails and being an example to other people, really basic things. But if, if we're all subscribing to the same thing, then, then the next generation of bikers is going to subscribe to that as well. Right. Yeah. And hopefully when you have people that travel to your community, whatever community that is, they're subscribing to that. So you don't have some of the conduct issues that sometimes result in the negative aspect of things we need to deal with when it comes to access. Right. And I don't, I think, well, it's the trail associations that are really saying, hey, we need this. I really do think the industry too, if the industry would support it. You know, recently I was in a conversation with someone in the industry and they're like, no, that's not our place. You know, like basically that would affect their bottom line, short term profit, the profits, because if they're saying, follow the rules, people would be like, I don't want your bike. But what about long-term down the road when you don't have access to trails for those bikes that you're trying to sell? Oh, yeah. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, I mean, how much, how much awesome mountain biking in there is there without trails? Right. Exactly. So you can't sell your bikes if people are losing access to trails. Yep. For sure. Yeah. And that is something that the industry definitely needs to uh, adapt as an industry collectively. So then that one company doesn't get singled out because it's all the companies then that adopt it. Right. And I mean, because really mountain biking is, has traditionally been, and at that kind of high level, the core mountain biker is a little bit of an outlaw, right? Like not following the rules. So it's not that cool. And that does tend to get precipitated or um, encouraged by the industry in a way, if that makes sense. So it does. um, Yeah. You're preaching to the choir. (laughs) I mean, hey, I'm not cool. I get it. I know. But, um, and, and I'm saying ride with gratitude. But anyway, you hear what I'm saying. Yeah. And maybe it isn't up to the industry to actually come up with it. It should be the trail organizations that come up with it, but it is up to the industry to promote it, support it, and, and push right. it. Exactly. Share it. You know, support it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you once again. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Um, Thanks for the conversation. And um, if you have any more questions or anything, anything comes up, let me know. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in this show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, please remember to leave a comment and rate the show wherever you consume your podcasts. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>